Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the last month of the year and it's a very warm welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. This happy hour, it's good book choices for Christmas giving and getting. Andrew Marshbags, Wordsworth Books, gives us that chain's best in festive fiction and non-fiction. Beverly Rosemuller relishes John de Carey's autobiography, The Pigeon Tunnel, and wonders how much of it may be fiction. Jay Heal happily suggests sort of classical Christmas reading for children, while Cindy Moritz escaped into the frenzied world of moneyed Manhattan with Jay McKearney's Bright Precious Days. Philip Todras talks to Bronwyn Yorfulion about The Printmaker, which gives her impeccable background to conjure a story that is, in fact, her first novel. Vanessa Levenstein swings into Swing Time by Zadie Smith, who explores how the shadows of childhood friendships outline our future. Melvin Minar, too, throbs to the thrill of a new discovery in His Bloody Project by Graham McRae Burnett, and Philippa Schaefitz cheerfully chomps through three great cookbooks, ending with Zeta Stain's Good, Better Green, thus more grand greens in Plentiful, the big book of Buddha food, as you'll hear from three of the four imaginative chefs. If we've time, there's Peter Soule's timely take on Paul Hoffman's Confronting the Corrupt. Do stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200-rand Wordsworth books vouchers or a copy of Plentiful. Andrew Marshbanks, a jolly bag full of Wordsworth books there. Hi, everyone. Well, we're hurtling towards Christmas. As you know, this will be the last book talk before Christmas. So what we do at Wordsworth, we do a selection of what we think are the best Christmas things. Not everything, but it's a whole selection of things that we can wholeheartedly recommend. And I've got a few of these things today just to talk about them, and we reduce the prices as well. So you get books that would be like 300 Rand, and they're 380, somewhere around there. So I've got a few books here. The first, the most important, of course, it's our South African ambassador at the moment, Trevor Noah, Born a Crime and Other Stories. Now, I was surprised when I started reading this. He comes over as such a humble intelligent, wonderful person. He goes right through his problems, his childhood. I don't know if anyone heard the interview with him on the radio. I mean, this man is really very clever, very crafted, very funny at all. And his his book is beautifully, beautifully written. You can see why he was grabbed by television in America and given this extremely highly paid job. The book is actually number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It deserves everything. He is fantastic. I'm a great fan of his. That's Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, and we've taken 15 Rand off and it's 285 Rand. There's a new political biography just been brought out, and this is with that redoubtable Dean Smuts, who unfortunately died a while ago. She was an amazing, astonishingly strong, powerful person who edited Fair Lady. I worked with her for a while, and she's astonishing. She was a huge member of Parliament. She did a lot of work, and it was really a hole in South African life when she died. 
her biography has just come out, and it's Dean Smuts, Patriots and Parasites. I can recommend this for anyone who's interested in powerful women or politics in South Africa. That's Dean Smuts, Patriots and Parasites. Amy Schumer, I don't know if you've seen some of those Amy Schumer comedy things. She's really quite close to the bone, really in there and uh, feminist. And uh, I love her, absolutely love her. Her sense of humor is brilliant. She's written her biography, her partial biography, called The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo, Amy Schumer. And she is brilliant. As you know, anyone who's watched her, she is totally brilliant. We've taken some money off this, and it's 295 rand. Then, going local. I know I waxed lyrical about the last Tani Maria book. Well, I think she's brilliant. And it's funny enough, we were at a dinner party the other day. And watch it happen. Out comes dessert, and the, our hostess very proudly says, and I baked this from the Tani Maria book, you know. And it was a chocolate cake with cream and everything. It was absolutely delicious. The recipe straight out of Tani Maria. So you can take these recipes, and you can use them and cook them, and they're brilliant. Right, the new one is called Tani Maria and the Satanic Mechanic. Sally Andrew is the author, and she is just brilliant. She's got something here. It's a small Karoo town. It's a character that you can empathize with. It's problems living in, in South Africa and living in a small Karoo town. It's brilliant. It's charming. There are recipes in it. I, anyone will enjoy this. So that's Tani Maria and the Satanic Mechanic, a Tani Maria mystery. And it is 230 rand. You save 10 rand. 220 rand, approximately. Right. Now, I've got the District 6 Haste Combes Food and Memory Cookbook. This book is just beautiful. Brings back all the memories of District 6, the long-ago District 6, together with all those Cape Malay recipes that you wished you had saved from Granny's old book and that sort of stuff. Goes right through the people who lived beautiful photographs, people who lived in District 6, their old photographs, new photographs, their maps, their recipes, there's a whole timetable of what happened in there, how to make scones, how to make everything, Malay curry. It's a beautiful book. It's a book that you can treasure, keep forever, and it is 370 rand, 375 rand, somewhere around there. Right, straight from the District 6 Haste Combe's Food and Memory Cookbook, we've got Hugh Johnson on wine. Now, Hugh Johnson, as everyone knows, is a brilliant wine author. He's been writing about wine for millions of years. And Hugh Johnson has got this collection of his best columns on wine. For people who are in the know on wine, this is a must-have. Um, he is brilliant. His articles are incisive, beautifully written, and his opinions are very, very highly regarded. We brought the price down to 300 rand. He's a total master. That's Hugh Johnson on wine. And then the last book, a cookbook. Who can resist cookbooks at Christmas? And this is our very own homegrown Reuben. Now, his books have always been total top bestsellers. And this one is no exception. It's called Reuben at Home. It's what he cooks for himself and his family. And I have to say, I'm not sure whether he does take away pizza or any of those sort of things, but I would love to live in Reuben's family. He cooks absolutely beautifully. This is food that you and I can cook. It's simple, 
but carefully uh, calibrated, good food, good ingredients, done in a very skillful way. This is food that you can cook, that I can cook. And if I can cook it, then you can cook it. That is Ruben, uh, Ruben at Home, his uh, cookbook, his new cookbook, Ruben Riffle, and that is 330 Rand. Well, there you are. We've got hundreds, thousands of books there waiting for Christmas. A lot of children's books as well that we've reduced. And the new Wimpy Kid. Um, there are all sorts of things for children there. There's a lovely new Mandela book called Mr. Hare Meets Mr. Mandela by Chris Van Veek. It's a great story by Chris Van Veek and illustrated by Paddy Bomer. This is a book worth having. Any child will enjoy it. And that's only 110 Rand. Well, thanks, everyone. Have a marvelous and fabulous Christmas and into the new year. Enjoy yourselves and happy reading. Cheers. <laughs> yes, happy reading. Beverly Rosemuller, John de Carre's autobiography. Fact or fiction, do you think? Well, my stars. I never thought I'd see the day. John le Carre, a giant in the writing world and famously secretive about his life and privacy, has finally written a memoir. But before you clutch your pearls and reach for the bottle, there are a number of warnings about what I found to be one of the most readable books of the year. Firstly, The Pigeon Tunnel, Stories from My Life, is only a very partial memoir, a slight chink in the armor of his life, bits and pieces of anecdotal and often beguiling or startling stories about people he has met. Some spies, some very famous politicians and movie stars, some unknown yet remarkable characters. His famous pen name, his real name is David Cornwall, allowed him to enter into places that the rest of us could never reach. There is also perhaps a warning that we should be cautious about his reflections. He was born a liar, always was one, always will be, he claims, trained to spy and did so for his country during his early years a fact he disguised until it could no longer be denied, particularly after his international bestseller, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. He doubts that there is any such thing as pure memory, which is as elusive as a bar of wet soap, he says, and he's probably right. In any case, he assures us that nowhere has he deliberately falsified anything though his biographer, Adam Sisman, claims that, like many prolific writers, he has a tendency to blur the lines between what he imagined happened and the actual facts. I think that this book, the title is pertinent, but connected to such a gruesome story, I can't repeat it, will give the most pleasure to those deeply versed in his work. Many of the stories are connected to memorable characters he has created, or in one bizarre case, that of Jerry Westerby in The Honorable Schoolboy, the best of all his works, he discovered to his amazement only after publication that an exact doppelganger for Westerby actually did exist, right down to the size, aristocratic tics, and speech. There's plenty here for those not well-read in his work. In fact, so many movies and TV series the last, The Night Manager, has been a big hit internationally, though privately I thought it dismaying me far from the book, has introduced an entirely different audience to his name. Some movies were successful. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold starred Richard Burton, and it succeeded despite the author's misgivings. 
he was required to hold Burton's hand when he got the dishes. And he writes, How on earth will this beautiful, thunderous, baritone Welsh voice and this overpowering triple alpha male talent fit inside the character of a washed-up middle-aged British spy? The film was rescued by Burton's huge charisma and talent, as was The Russia House by Sean Connery's marvellous portrayal of an alcoholic washed-up bookseller who finds love more beguiling than patriotism. The trail is, of course, an integral part of every book he has ever written. Other films crashed due to terrible directing or miscasting or, as in the case of The Little Drummer Girl, a catastrophic mix of both. He's candid about these. He reserves the highest praise of all, thoroughly deserved, for the superlative Alec Guinness as George Smiley in the BBC series. Never has his work been more magnificently brought to life. He came to know that master actor, a discreet, solitary man who valued form. Day and night he studies and stores away the mannerisms of the adult enemy, molds his own face, voice, and body into countless versions of us while he simultaneously explores the possibilities of his own nature. He steals shamelessly from those around him. This could be written of Le Carre himself. His lifelong battle with his loving, abusive, criminal father is already well documented and wonderfully realized in the author's most autobiographical novel, The Perfect Spy. In this memoir, he gives credit to him as the heartbreaking con man who gave him enough education and material to last forever. In some ways, therefore, this memoir is a painful acknowledgement to Ronnie, the dad from hell. Other big names appear. But it is the smaller stories that often intrigue the most. If you know anyone who has loved John McCarry's work, this surely must be the ideal holiday gift. Highly readable, I rejoiced in it. Jay Hill, sort of classical Christmas books for children. Once upon a time, quite a long time ago now, about last Friday, <laughs> with those momentous words began the first story of Winnie the Pooh and it was quite a long time ago back in 1926 and to celebrate Pooh's 90th anniversary four authors and an artist have created four new Winnie the Pooh stories this handsome book is called The Best Bear in All the World illustrated in full colour by Mark Burgess who cleverly catches the exact style of the original artist E.H. Shepherd. Each tale is set in a different season in the Hundred Acre Wood. Paul Bright has Christopher Robin striding through autumn, rehearsing his words for St. George in his school play. Yes, he has grown up a little. And Piglet is as nervous of meeting a dragon as he once was of a heffond. Brian Sibley covers the Hundred Acre Wood with snow and introduces a new person called Penguin, while a notice explains that C.R. has gone to Bogganin. Gene Willis has Pooh and Rabbit and all his friends and relations helping to search for another donkey which might be about to steal Eeyore's thistles and Kate Saunders rounds off the year 
with the bare of very little brain, dreaming of the source of the Nile and finding a summer picnic instead, all of which is great fun and goes to prove what a very clever writer A.A. Milne was all those years ago. Here now is a story written by Beatrix Potter in 1914, but never illustrated by her. Perhaps she felt it too warlike, which in a way it is. It's about a harem-scarum house cat who spends far more time out of the house than in. The Tale of Kitty in Boots, written by Beatrix Potter, is now fully illustrated by no less than Quentin Blake. Kitty, or Miss Catherine St. Quentin, as she calls herself, sets off poaching. And after meeting Mrs. Dickywinkle and a well-known rabbit in a blue coat, Kitty learns better sense, stops poaching, and abandons the gun. I'm not quite sure about Quentin Blake's scratchy cat's faces, but otherwise he gets it just right. The cat-loving old woman in the cottage is most Potter-like. It's a large-sized book, by the way, not in line with its pocket-sized predecessors. A quick glance at Mr. Hare Meets Mr. Mandela by Chris Van Lake had me thinking that this was another Peter Rabbit story, but of course it isn't. Hare is a genuine African hare, and he wears a with-it blue Mandela shirt. This is the old archetypal hare character of Africa, full of bumptious self-confidence and ready for a fall. Mr. Hare finds a 200-rand note, and cunning as ever, he can't read, but he can recognize the picture of Nelson Mandela. So he sets off to return the note to him. Unfortunately, Mr. Hare gets steadily fleeced along the way, so what he hands to the president is not an orange 200 rand, but a green 10 rand note. However, he has met Mr. Mandela, and so has the reader, through kindly pictures and twinkling text. A large-paged picture book full of Africa, engagingly illustrated by Paddy Bomar and a worthy final tribute to the late Mr. Mandela and to the late Chris Van Veek, who has recently been awarded a posthumous literary award for his additions to the literature of South Africa. There you are, three splendid publications to enliven your festive season and a happy Christmas reading to you all. <laughs> Sweet Jay. And uh, here's our easy peasy competition question to win a copy of Plentiful. You'll hear our chat about it later in the programme. Or one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Let's give Santa a miss this year and concentrate on the conservation of his reindeer. Do reindeer usually wear horns or Christmas hats? Ring us and tell us on 021. Four oh one one oh one three. Cindy Morris, the frenzied world of Manhattan money. Jay McInerney calls himself a chronicler of New York City. He takes cataclysmic events and interprets them as they affect regular people. 
He also uses satire to place in perspective the over-the-top microcosm inhabited by a certain class of affluent liberal New Yorkers. Bright Precious Days is the third so far in a series that follows the lives of a supposed golden couple, Russell and Corinne Calloway. The author first introduced the characters in his novel Brightness Falls, published in 1992, developed them through the aftermath of 9/11 in The Good Life, published in 2006, and brings us to this juncture in their marriage in Bright Precious Days. Russell and Corinne are entering their fifties and are parents to eleven-year-old twins, Story, a girl, and Jeremy, a boy. They still live in a small loft space in Tribeca, which they may or may not be able to afford much longer. Russell is now co-owner of a small publishing house where he'd had success as an editor before, while Corinne runs a food charity inspired by her volunteer work at a soup kitchen over the months following 9/11. Russell takes a leap of faith and signs a new literary prodigy straight out of Tennessee, Jack Carson, who is described as having an appetite for controlled substances, and regales fellow guests when he attends his first Manhattan dinner party with tales of crystal meth and moonshine. They later gather around the television to watch CNN anchors predict the outcome of the 2008 presidential race. Tension revolved around whether Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama would win the Democratic Party candidacy. Meanwhile, Corinne is reunited with a former lover at a fundraiser for a South African charity. Luke McGavock proves difficult for Corinne to resist, and this threatens a marriage that is described as seaworthy, if not exactly buoyant. There's the requisite best black friend, Washington, and his wife, Veronica, who have done well but have not escaped the shenanigans of the city. The various literary types at the summer parties in the Hamptons, the socialite women and their bored rich husbands, the mistresses and the lovers—I could go on, but why would I spoil the fun? One would do well to bear in mind that McInerney is known to be a social satirist before getting huffy about some of the seemingly obvious caricature sketches in this novel. I recently read a thread on a social media book group decrying contemporary American literary novels, and let me just qualify that I'm not sure that this one purports to be a literary novel that revolve around rich. Artsy, unlikable characters in New York City who convey a sense of self-importance of this particular subculture through the narrative that irritates certain readers. And I thought of this while reading Bright Precious Days because I believe this author was poking fun at the sometimes ridiculousness of his own community through the telling of Russell and Corinne's story. He admitted as much in an interview with the Guardian, saying. This part of Manhattan is just too absurd and too over the top to take entirely seriously. Yet I tried to create a realistic portrait of a marriage. I don't think you can spend a whole book making fun of the people you are writing about. And this comment brought home to me what Bright Precious Days is actually all about. When you strip away the glamour, the trappings, and parties of the literati and the fast-paced buzz of big money, you are left with the people and the simplicity of the relationships. That are going to get them through. Whether and how Corinne and Russell survive as a couple, you'll have to find out. This is a great choice for a holiday read, as it's not too taxing on the brain, and it'll take you right out of the everydayness of life. It may even make you a little bit grateful for what you have. 
And here's a pre-record of Philip uh, Todris chatting to Bronwell Law Filiun about her book, The Printmaker. The Printmaker by Bronwyn Law Filiun was a mesmerizing read, and I really mean that, and I have Bronwyn on the line. Bronwyn, I'm going to read you the extract that intrigued me. When you are Helena in the book, and you start by saying, I was, of course, intensely curious. Apart from my fascination with the art itself and March's process of making, I wanted to gather the pieces together to make a whole story, even a partly fabricated one. So tell me a little bit. I, I, I was just intrigued because I know who you are. I know your background mm. in printmaking, in writing, in publishing. And here you had a fantastic opportunity in almost, well, how much of this life did you invent? Well, the character of March is loosely based on a real person who I never met, who was a printmaker and fairly reclusive artist in Johannesburg. I came into possession of his, his work um, after his death, and it was given to me by a woman who'd been his lifelong friend. So I didn't know him at all when the story opens for me, um, and I sat on this work for about five or six years. He wrote a memoir, an incomplete memoir, and a few people knew him. So there were little traces of his story here and there. And the person who had given me this body of work also told me bits about his life. But at a certain point, I think when it came to creating the character of March, I I left the, the biographical details aside. I actually didn't want to know who he was beyond the sort of bare fact of, of his life and those are what interested me so I, I really did invent him you know he I never met this person and I pieced him together I put I, I created a character who who was interested in making images as obviously the real historical person had been uh, and who lived alone in a house in Johannesburg but beyond that I wanted to try and understand how his mind worked, how the mind of somebody who's compelled to make images functioned, and in particular when he spent most of his time on his own and a great deal of that time making images. And it could only have been you who could have teased out the story, because in fact I'm not even interested in how much of it is real or yeah, not or invented, yeah. because you make it totally convincing. Okay, good. well, that's good. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, you, you, you talk about you as Helena. I, I suppose that character is quite close to me as a person. But beyond that, I mean, she's also, an, you know, they're all characters, they're all fictional characters. And so I suppose I, I would identify most closely with that character, but I don't share much beyond that. With, with that particular character. But you have that background knowledge, so March Halbert yes. becomes a very real person. Yes. And it's an yeah. incredible challenge between the, his demons of creativity yes. versus the demons of angst and anxiety and complexities of his life. And yes. you breathe an enormous life and character into each of the voices that you yeah. speak with, which I also found yes. a beautiful way of telling that story. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I started by writing the character of March in a series of fragments. I didn't really know that this was a novel. I didn't know for a long time that it was a novel. And I wrote, I wrote March's character in a, in a series of internal monologues. And 
and then I suppose what happens when you when you do have to do something as big as a novel, you have to you have to have a character speak to somebody else at some point. Well, you make them speak very vividly <laughs> and very well, and I must congratulate you on a beautiful read. And just to give the information, the printmaker by Bronwyn Lawful Yoon is published by Penguin Random House South Africa under the Muzi label, mm. and it's certainly a wonderful read. And here again is our easy-peasy competition question to win a copy of Plentiful. You'll hear about that soon. Or one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books, Vouchers. So let's give Santa a miss this year and concentrate on the conservation of his reindeer. Do reindeer usually wear horns or Christmas hats? We're waiting for your calls on 021-401-1013. Vanessa Levenstein, the first time you've read Zadie Smith. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers glide through the air in a toe-tapping, perfectly in sync routine in the film Swing Time. The dance of life is not so smooth, as Zadie Smith explores in her novel Swing Time. From Fred Astaire to Michael Jackson, Smith's narrative has a soundtrack of its own. The central character, the narrator, is nameless throughout. This is an interesting literary device, as the narrator sees herself through the mirror, albeit the cracked mirror, of others. Elana Ferrante explored the complexities of childhood friendship in her famous Neapolitan Quartet. So too, Smith explores this theme and carves the distinction between the child that stays in the poor neighborhood and the child that leaves. At their first meeting at a dance studio, the narrator, age seven, is instantly drawn to Tracy. Our shade of brown was exactly the same, as if one piece of tan material had been cut to make us both. While the external similarities are evident, their home lives are polarized. The narrator's feminist mother is politically active and strives to conscientize her daughter, while Tracy's mother's aspirations lie in her daughter's dance career. As the girls mature, Tracy's natural talent and confidence leave the narrator with a sense of less than. The story swings back and forth as the narrator develops her second pivotal relationship with another woman, her employer, Amy. This character is clearly placed on Madonna with a dash of Angelina Jolie. Amy, like Tracy, is supremely confident. Amy's sense of her own omnipotence is such that she sees herself as a salvation to a small African village, a modern-day missionary. The novel is 453 pages, and perhaps some of the visits to Africa could have been cut. As readers, we really do get quite quickly that while Amy is well-meaning, her cash injection into this little village is yet another form of appropriation. There doesn't seem a place in the narrator's world for two friends to coexist. Happiness in swing time always seems to be at the expense of the other, as opposed to with each other. Smith ties together different worlds seamlessly. At the beginning of the novel, the narrator's mother tells her, I'm reading about the Sankofa. You know what it is? It's a bird. It looks backwards at the past, and it learns from what's gone before. Some people never learn. The Sankofa appears in another form at the end of the novel. The question is whether the Sankofa has been saved or abducted from Africa. Smith is unapologetic as she deconstructs society and strips her characters to the core. Swing Time is definitely a book to sink your white teeth into.
Melvin Minar, a discovery for you too, wasn't it? It's called His Bloody Project and it's by Graham McRae Bannett. A subsection of us bookowls are always on the prowl for the new, lesser known and the different. The thrill of a new discovery that sets our hearts and minds racing and keeps us up reading deep into the night. Graham McRae Burnett's nifty novel, His Bloody Project, shortlisted for this year's Man Booker Prize, is indeed that racy kind of read, a murder thriller that drives relentlessly towards answers, or not in this case. Subtitled, and I quote, Documents Relating to the Case of Roderick McRae, unquote, it reimagines the story of a 17-year-old Scottish Highland boy who killed three people in 1869 in an isolated small coastal village. He freely admits to the slaughter of the local malevolent constable and children, and a number of villagers witness it. Victims and perpetrator are known from the onset. But if that gory tale is the broad outline of a narrative that keeps one turning page after page, Clever McRae Burnett has constructed a novel that plays up and with all the ads on that often give contemporary writing such engaging power. The construct of his bloody project is around what the author surmises to the reader to be his discovery of that unusual incident deep in his family history. This metafictional device not only has the impact of giving the prose an urge of authenticity, it gleefully mixes real history into the plot. And so the four documents we are offered as readers are loaded with the details, twists and turns that make courtroom dramas compelling audience draw cards. The so-called texts are offered in the matter-of-fact manner of court records and evidence, which of course, given the horror of the murders, triggers exactly the emotional response that keeps the reader on edge. Central is a so-called memoir by the youthful killer, written by him trial awaiting in jail. The court case and follow-up are presented in witness statements, police records and newspaper reports. This is another clever device. These reports are supposed to be factual, bland and forensic, and yet, of course, they are loaded. The central question of this knife-edge thriller turns around the motive. That the boy killed three people horribly is not disputed. He acknowledges guilt from the start. But why? As the story unfolds in McRae Burnett's scheme, the reader becomes aware that the intrigue moves to a psychological and even complicated social level. The argument of sanity and its shifting perspectives come into play. In his colorful, crispy, sometimes witty, even funny and precise prose, McRae Burnett constructs a vivid scenario of a distant time. His wretched characters step up and out of their bleak environment as ghosts to entertain us with a delicious, pulsating read. Graham McRae Burnett is one of this year's surprise finds in the Man Booker lineup. His is a truly wonderful new literary voice. His bloody project is a must-find for all stalking the thrill of the new. His bloody project by Gray McRae Burnett is published by Contraband. Philippa Schaefitz, you've really been stirring the pots. Cookbooks for Christmas. A cookbook is always a great gift for a keen cook. For family and friends seems a perfect title to give at the festive season. It's by Nikki Stubbs, a talented cook. The book provides a seriously good repertoire for pleasing the family and dazzling friends. All the everyday favorites from macaroni cheese to meatballs, plus the stars for impressing, 10-hour slow-cooked lamb and cock of arn. 
There is a lot of lovely baking and much loved desserts. The author has a cordon bleu cooking course to her credit, but she's in tune with a home cook. All the recipes are doable and delicious. It's published by Human and Rousseau, and it sells for 393 rand. I've enjoyed such good food on stays in Portugal and loved cooking from Mimi Jardine's earlier recipe books documenting Portuguese dishes. She contributed to my own South Africa Eat. Now in her new book, My Portuguese Feast, she collates recipes collected over 50 years of cooking and teaching. They are not only the classic and traditional recipes, but ones from family and friends. Her daughter Susie's lasagna and sister Rosie's monkey gland steaks and Daniel's vegetarian congee. Daniel himself is a brilliant chef and cookbook author, plus those brought back from her travels. Mimi says that all the recipes are from the heart. Her writing is whimsical and nostalgic. There are many old family photographs. It is a very pretty book, published by Quiver Tree, 385 rand. Capetonian Lisa Clark is known for her styling. She's obviously also a very good baker. In this easy-to-follow cookbook, The Cookie Jar, she shares 100 recipes for biscuits, cookies, and rusks that won't intimidate the home baker. Perhaps buy the book for yourself and start baking these delicious treats to give us gifts this Christmas. Published by Stroke Lifestyle, 206 Rand. The most inventive recipes to help you eat more greens is the claim on the cover of Good, Better, Green. And I couldn't agree more. Author Zeta Stein is innovative and inspirational. Born in South Africa, she studied at the Natural Gourmet Institute in New York to become a nutritional chef, then founded Food Fights in London. She consults and teaches on how to incorporate healthy food into everyday life. It's not only about greens, but all the vegetables and grains. It's not exclusively vegetarian. There's a recipe for smoked mackerel and watercress mousse, lamb, mint and coriander burgers, kale and lemon stuffed chicken with cauliflower couscous, a Cape Malay style mutton curry that comes with a vegetarian option chickpeas and roasted pumpkin instead of the meat, great salads, and interesting low-carb baking, savory and sweet, lovely food photographs, published by Quadro, 345 rand. And here's a pre-record with the four chefs who so brilliantly produced one of the books you could be winning today. It's called Plentiful, the Big Book of Buddha Food. Paul Atkinson. Let's chat about Plentiful, the indeed plentiful cookbook that you and four other chefs have just produced. It's subtitled The Big Book of Buddha Food for you're all at the Buddhist retreat centre in Xopo. It's a centre that was featured by CNN, no less, as one of the ten finest meditation centres in the world. Not only is plentiful, bountiful, but there's also a quality of, what do I say, a quality of kindness about it and a sense of serenity. Perhaps it's balm for those of us who can't bear the abattoir. Angela Shaw's photographs are exquisite. The moody, misty ones of the retreat centre, those so beautifully focused on your lovely food. 
Paul, if a couple of fine music radio listeners turned up for lunch, what would you give them for the three-course lunch from Plentiful? All right, well, it's, um, it would be kind of seasonal dependent, I think, uh, is, is probably the, the best answer I can give you there. If you were kind of coming in sort of a nice hot summery day, doing something like our vegetable caponata, which is a lovely sort of Italian tomato-based dish with lots of capers and olives and, and lovely things like that in it, probably a char-grilled bean and um, sun-dried tomato olive salad, stick in uh, the watermelon, ginger and mint salad with a lovely side of vinegar sort of dressing for sort of a little, another little side dish. You could maybe do tantric tartlets, which are uh, puff pastry and then topped with some roasted vegetables and um, a homemade pesto. And maybe to finish off, we could look at doing you something oh, summery, like a, a nice pineapple pudding, um, the sublime pine in a buttery batter. <laughs> nice um, name. Yes, you're coming in sort of an autumn-y, wintry time, then maybe you want something a bit more rib-sticking, so perhaps trying the, the Marrakesh Express. It's a, it's, a, it's a vegetable tagine, which is a sort of Moroccan vegetable uh, dish with lots of uh, nuts and soaked apricots and raisins and, and gently spiced in a, in a sort of, yeah. I think that's what, I think, I think that's one of my favourite, that one and the North African curry with peanut butter, quarter of a cup of peanut butter. Yes. That's yes, divine. Absolutely delicious. Absolutely delicious. And so easy to make as well. All your ingredients are very simple. They're not many. And it's all very easy peasy, isn't it? Lovely stuff. That is something I actually have meant to do, is, is kind of count up the number of ingredients that we've used in the entire book, which I haven't got around to doing yet. But they are, there's only sort of quite a small handful, really, when you look at it on a, on a cookery book scale. And everything that's in, in the book is available at the sort of spa in Ikopo. So if it's available here, it's, it's kind of available anywhere, which is, for me, quite an important thing. Because quite often you, you open a book and there's 101 million things that are very obscure and out of, out of the reach of the consumer unless you're sort of in quite a niche market. Um, and, um, Paul, when we're also going to talk to three of the other chefs, aren't we? Lindiwi, Dudu right. and Dungi. Is Lindiwi yeah. there? Lindiwi is here. Okay. I will always hand it over to you, Nana. Thank you. Hello, Lindiwi Ngobo. Yes. And I know that you love your fresh greens and herbs from the retreat's garden. Give us your favourite dish from the book Plentiful. Lasagna. Lasagna. Oh, that's lovely, hey. Lindiwi. I know it. I know it. That's a wonderful one. Without meat, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Dudu Mela. And... You're an imaginative and passionate cook. What is your favourite dish from Plentiful? Macaroni cheese. And it's not an ordinary macaroni cheese. There's a lovely photograph of you with your macaroni cheese. I haven't made it and it looks wonderful, Dudu. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and is Lungi there, please? Okay. Is that Lungi? Yes. <laughs> Lungi Mbona. You particularly love puddings and baking. Which is your yes. okay? Which is your favorite dish from the book? Oh, from the book, my favorite dish is the cannelloni, the butternut, and goat cheese cannelloni. It sounds wonderful, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peter Soul, your timely take on Paul Hoffman's confronting the corrupt.
Paul Hoffman has been involved in the law one way or another since he left St. Martin's School in Johannesburg and completed his BA LLB at the University of the Witwatersrand in 1974. He practiced as an attorney in both Johannesburg and Cape Town, where he was admitted as an advocate in 1980 and practiced as a junior at the Cape Bar until 1995. As a jurist, Advocate Hoffman was the founding editor of Current Law Cassettes and a part-time lecturer at the University of the Western Cape. He took silk in 1995 and continued to practice at the Cape Bar, where he headed its advocacy skills training program. Three successive judges president of the Cape High Court invited him to serve as an acting judge. In 2006, after 26 years of membership, he left the Cape Bar in order to take up an appointment as director of the Centre for Constitutional Rights. Its mission to uphold the Constitution dovetails with his personal commitment to the rule of law and the promotion of constitutional democracy. As director, he wrote widely on threats to the Constitution and appeared in the Constitutional Court as amicus curiae. Since January 2009, Hoffman has been pursuing his passion for exacting accountability via setting up and working with the Institute for Accountability in Southern Africa and pursuing various human rights and constitutional matters. Hoffman also speaks out on matters of social justice and following recent student unrest, he wrote, quote, the fees must fall movement has a legitimate demand at its core and illegitimate thuggery on its periphery. The legitimate demand ought to be dealt with responsibly and the thuggery needs to be dealt with properly and decisively by invoking the criminal justice system and the disciplinary machinery available at the universities. Left unchecked, the thugs, who are a few in number, have the potential to destroy higher education completely to the everlasting detriment of the country as a whole." Unquote. The Institute for Accountability has been renamed Accountability Now, which is more user-friendly, and Hoffman has produced a book entitled Confronting the Corrupt, published by Tafelberg. The book covers three main incidents of activity for his NGO. The first, which he deals with extensively, sets out detail of the efforts he and Terry Crawford Brown went to to have a judicial commission of inquiry established to consider the arms deal only to be disappointed by the conclusions reached by the Sereti Commission. The second was the support for the Glenister challenge to the decision to abandon the Scorpions, the anti-corruption unit based in the National Prosecuting Authority, and replace them with the Hawks, a unit based in the police service. Efforts included the involvement of Renette Talyard, formerly of the Helen Sussman Foundation, and Peter Leon of attorneys Weber Wenzel. The third case dealt with is the breaking of the bread cartel and a fascinating description of the journey to Bloemfontein and then on to Bromfontein. Hoffman concludes an interesting, easy-to-read narrative by suggesting a further Chapter 9 institution entitled the Integrity Commission be established to prevent, combat, investigate and prosecute corruption. Confronting the Corrupt is a delightful book of just over 200 pages and will make a suitable stocking stuffer this coming Christmas period. And that's it then. It was good to be so festively with you. It's a very Merry Christmas and 
Happy holidays to you. It was great to be with you this whole year. From Mawandi Lobi, production engineer, from Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music as always, and as always, kept the show on the road. And from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor, it's Don't Forget the Reindeer. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.